guest this week is the Conservative member of the London Assembly, Sean Bailey. Sean, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. Thank you. Now, I'd like to start this interview by asking you about knife crime in London. It's, it's an absolute staining on our country and the problem only seems to be getting worse at the moment, unfortunately. What do you think needs to be done to prevent more people from being killed on our streets? I think there's two things I'd say. Firstly, let's look at the history of knife crime. The real shame is London is, uh, certainly traditionally, has been probably the safest big city in the world. It's why we have so many international guests. It's why we have such a strong and vibrant immigrant community, because you could come here, you could be safe, and you could build a better future. So to let that slip is a real loss. And it's a loss that not only hurts us physically, um, but morally and also financially as well, because you have people around the world now who are beginning to w- wonder if they can come to London safely. Um, so that's you know my reason for getting on top of it. But added to that, there's communities in London that are under such pressure, they're traumatised now because of the level of knife crime in their community. So that's why I've been trying to press the mayor and why in my campaign I pressed to get knife crime down. Because although it's a black community who suffers the most from knife crime, So for instance, if you're a black Londoner, you're four times more likely to be murdered than your white neighbor. Of course, we all suffer from knife crime because it makes all of us scared and it changes what it is to be a Londoner. So that's why I think it's a a real topic that we have to get on top of. And of course, it's linked to other crimes as well, uh, primarily gang and drug use as well. Well, you mentioned there the um, adverse impact, particularly on the black community. And in the past five years, there's been an increase of 68% in the amount of black people killed in London, primarily through knife crime. Why do you think it is specifically black people who are disproportionately the victims and also the perpetrators of crime in London? But this is the question, isn't it? Because only this morning I asked the mayor if he would conduct a particular study to understand why black people are so murdered. The black community in London is the most murdered community in the entire country and to to get to the bottom of this the mayor should conduct a study i asked him to do that he point blank refused to do so i asked him again and he refused to do so he made all kinds of excuses the bottom line is we have some idea of why the black community is not only the perpetrator but also the victim of knife crime as well but we need to understand more some of it has been in london because the mayor um reduced stop and search and as he reduced stop and search there's a large spike in the amount of weapons on the street we saw 78 percent rise in robbery for instance so that was a direct result of poor um policy setting by the mayor but look this isn't about politics this is about understanding why and turning it around and of course if you have a community who's victimized by knife crime, what it tends to do is carry a knife to defend itself. And that's why we have to break that cycle. And that's why we have to have more information as to why the black community is such a so heavily affected by knife crime. And almost as, a, as an extension of this, it seems to be that there is little or no pattern to the, the way knife crime happens. I mean, a large number of stabbings in, in recent weeks seem to be happening in very busy areas and even in broad daylight in, in some cases. Is the lack of action on this by the Met Police leading to a number of criminals simply having the ability to act so brazenly? Yes, the, 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 the short answer is yes. But let's separate these things out. We have gang-driven activity. We have random knife crime as well. And we have knife crime that's deeply based in, in, in communities around feuds and fights, etc. 
The Metropolitan Police have, have been trying their best, but they absolutely need to do more. And that's why they have made a, 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 a strong statement around increasing stop and search. And let's be clear, stop and search itself has been disproportionate. And there are many things that we need to do better about the, um, the disproportionality of stop and search, but the effect of knife crime has also been disproportionate. So in my campaign, I was saying to the, anybody listening, including the black community, we're going to have to do more stop and search. And whenever I was challenged, I'd say two things to people. If you have a better way of getting these knives off the street, please tell me, I'll do that. And secondly, what are we going to do about the huge number of black people who are being murdered? Because of course, if you're murdered, there's a real serious deep ripple in the community. That's why I was very clear to say, if I was mayor of London, I would step up the amount of tagging I would do. I think it breaks into gang activity. It helps protect vulnerable people from being dragged into that activity because it removes the privacy around crime. I would not legalize drugs. Sadiq Khan has a commission now looking at how to legalize drugs in London. Anybody who knows anything about drugs knows two things. It is the single biggest driver of crime in London. And all the other international comparisons people use, many of those nations have regretted illegalizing drugs. And of course, they are not London. They have very, very different um, drug marketplace to, to, to deal with. And thirdly, we've got to back the police to do their job. The feeling on the street of London is you, you, you can slightly do as you please. And that's because we keep assaulting the, 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 um, the authority of the police. When the police are in the wrong, we should come down on, on top of them like a ton of bricks. But when they're in the right, we need to really give them the support so they can get, make the black community and every other community in London safe. More, more recently as well, within issues around the, the Metropolitan Police at the moment, there, there have been... Uh, issues with certainly a n number of officers. I know, for example, the, the absolutely horrific murder of Sarah Everard, and uh, there's also the, the murder of Sabina Nessa as well. And it's, it also shows just how dangerous life can be for women, particularly women walking alone in public at night. Now, the Home Secretary, Priti Patel, has backed a, a plan for a new 888 hotline for women who are feeling threatened for them to call. Do you think this is a, a good idea, or do you think something else is needed, something more substantial? It's a good idea and other more substantial things are needed. Mm. The first thing is we need to support the police. We need to get to the bottom of this, um, this, this, this conundrum around the safety of women and girls in London. To my utter astonishment, the mayor of London said, London is no longer safe for women and girls and nobody challenged them except me. The press just let him say the statement and wander off, which is terrible. This has been a long time coming. Now the Sarah Everard case is disgraceful. And, 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 and hopefully he's an anomaly. That's a serving police officer who was a violent, evil man. We really hope that's an anomaly, but there's work to do to help the police make sure they identify characters like him and they never get to join the force in the first place. That's things around vetting and continued vetting and, and the, um, the systems they use to support their officers once they become an officer. The other piece though about the broader piece around women and girls is why I said to the mayor, we need to have things like CCTV cameras on every bus stop. Now, does that prevent crime? No, but it lets our stalkers, it lets our, our rapists know that they're being watched and they're much more likely to be caught. We need to keep stop and search up. We keep talking about stop and search as if it only affects the black community and only could be used on the black community, but it could be used on everybody. And if the police feel like someone is, is up to something, they should have the right to stop that person and talk to them and search them if necessary. And we need to support that right. But the real thing is that we need to now have a longer term conversation with young men and boys around the interactions with women and what they believe is, is a, a, a decent interaction, a decent relationship. I think that's a long-term piece of work, an ongoing piece of work we need to do. 
but right here, right now in London, we must be careful that as we scrutinise the police, and we do have to scrutinise them, and they do have questions to ask, that we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, because that will make women in London even more unsafe. We have to let the police have some authority to deal with crime in London. Well, on scrutiny around the police force, we, we had Andy Burnham, the mayor of Greater Manchester, on the show a few months ago, and he told me that the culture within Greater Manchester Police was one of the main reasons for the force's failings. Do you think that that does apply within the Metropolitan Police, in particular after the revelations of some, some of the activities of some officers following the, the murder of Sarah Everard? I think we have to separate these things out. Let's be clear, the culture of the police service in London definitely needs to be looked at. And there's a number of things, both systemic, for instance, how do we do vetting, and also more human. You know, when the Sarah Everard case, some of his colleagues used to call him very dim um, uh, names, you know, they had nicknames for him. Now, where was that coming from? And why couldn't anybody do a piece of work to see if actually there was some substance there? So the culture does need to be looked at. The police service in, in, in London is very huge and it has had a, a culture that's, that's sometimes been behind where we are in society and it absolutely needs to be changed. It, 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 really, it, really, it really does. And there's an issue here as well about professional standards. Now, I feel the police have done slightly better on professional standards, but there are still technical things. Again, I go back to how we supervise police officers. I go back to how we train police officers and also what we do around disciplining police officers as well, because the independent complaint authority is too slow. The IPA is too slow and it leaves police officers in limbo. And I think that's part of the culture that needs to be looked at. But a culture of individual officers as well does need to be challenged. And where it's bad, taken apart, and where it's good, supported. Well, in Grace Manchester, where, where I'm speaking to you from now, the, our police force, it's the second largest police force in the country. And it, it's been placed in special measures with a new chief constable appointed. Based on what you've just told me there about uh, certain issues with professional standards and vetting and uh, other, other issues within that force, do you think it, the Metropolitan Police should also be placed in this category? Actually, I don't. If you look at the work that the Metropolitan Police have done over the last 10 to 15 years, if, if, you, if you take into account Stephen Lawrence, for instance, they've done a huge amount of work to move forward. Are they perfect? Far from it. Are they doing well? They're trying hard. So I think we should support them in that. And if you look at the broad piece on the Metropolitan Police, I don't think they're anywhere near needing special standards. The Sarah Everard case and the Sabina case are particularly horrific points in time, but I don't I don't feel like that signifies the, 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 the quality of the whole operation. I mean, if they ever need special measures, then we should, we should look at that. But right here, right now, I don't think they need to be in special measures, no. Well, here we've seen some major changes since uh, we, we had a, a new chief constable appointed. So, the, and again, there have been other issues at the very top of the force as well. So do you think perhaps it's now time that Dame Cresta Dick, the commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, should resign? I think here in London, we have a different challenge than you have in Manchester. So in London, our problem has been a lack of leadership from City Hall. So if, if, if Cressida Dick was to leave tomorrow morning, it still wouldn't change the fact that the Mayor of London failed to keep women and girls safe on his watch. He's a police and crime commissioner for London. That's his job as well as her job. And I don't sense any leadership come from City Hall. So if, so if, if London has problems at the most senior level, the Mayor is certainly one of them. I'd also say there's a piece of work around continuity. Your new police um, chief in Manchester will need time to work through any issues that he, he or she finds. And I think our police commissioner down here has inherited a, a, a Metropolitan Police 
service with a lot of issues and hasn't had the time to work through them all. So I think she needs to be given that time to work through them, but she also needs to be given more support. I chair the Police and Crime Committee. We scrutinise her very hard, my predecessor equally as hard, but I do feel now we need to turn more to senior officers and in that as well we need to look at the mayor what is he asking for how comes he's calling on inquiries but he isn't looking at the work that he has or hasn't done for the police so if these problems do get worse do you think it's time that Sadiq Khan do does actually consider his position I would tell you four years ago Sadiq Khan could have considered his position and I don't just mean that from a political point of view remember you're talking about a mayor who his almost his first act was to remove 38 million pounds for the police staffing budget in London which guaranteed we'd have no figures of police officers he then went on to dismantle community policing which has left us with a lot of problems he then went on to ignore the huge murder rate in the black community and of course he then failed to keep women and girls safe in London as well so policing in London has faced a number of challenges, none of which um, Sadiq Khan has, has shown any leadership on, and these problems have all gotten worse. So I'd argue he could he could um, he could have considered his position an awful long time ago. And, and in fact, I'd add this, and the real issue that we have with Sadiq Khan is he won't take responsibility. You know, as, as you can imagine, Andy Berlin and I politically we are not on the same team, but I do sense a man who, who will take responsibility for what's going on in Manchester. Our police commissioner, Sadiq Khan constantly calls on the government. I remember when the Sarah Everard um, group wanted to have a vigil, he had the cheek to say, it's a, com a conversation between the government and, and, and the police, when he fully well knows it was a conversation between him and the police and him and the Sarah, Sarah Everard and, and the group who wanted to, to have the vigil. And that's just one example of a mayor who won't take responsibility for crime in London, and that's why it has grown. Well, I'd like to ask you about something that was reported earlier this week, and it's that uh, Sadiq Khan has actually cancelled this year's uh, New Year's Eve fireworks in London, the, the iconic event that for New Year's Eve, uh, for a second year in a row due to COVID-19, that's uh, his reasoning behind this. How does this make our country look on the world stage when the rest of the world will, in fact, be celebrating? I mean, there's three things I'll say about this. Firstly, um, the health secretary said he sees no um, reason why the, the fireworks can't go ahead. I happen to chair the economy committee as well, and we're having a big debate about how we get London back on the world map to get visitors in, because, of course, visitors come to London and then they go out into the rest of the country. Removing the fireworks is so damaging. It gives us maximum impact for our, for our pound because we do the fireworks. It puts London on everybody's minds. Many of the TV stations around the world will carry those pictures and again, elevate London. It's lots of high effect, low cost advertising. So why the mayor would remove that is incredible to me. Incredible to me. But it comes back to the fact that the reason he's done it is because he's absolutely destroyed London's finances. And anybody who, if you're listening to this now, you'll say, and your Labour vote, you say, of course you'll say that, you're, you're, you're the Tory candidate. But I'd, I'd, I'd say this, you've had a mayor, right, who's taken money, he's given £6 million to a Get London Moving campaign, okay, let's do London School, that's fine, okay, I, I get that. But why would you give money to that campaign and not give money to the biggest single international event we have? There's no planning here. There's no plan. And it means we have a scattergun approach and it means we lose the effect. And remember, this is public money. We should do that. And just on a sort of human level, 
we are all in the country trying to get back on our feet, trying to enjoy ourselves, trying to have some joy. And the fireworks is an important part of that. And if the mayor was serious, he could have sought a sponsor or he could have taken money from other parts of the budget that he's wasting. I think it's a real loss to not have those fireworks. I really do. And and just uh, as an extension of that, about uh, some of the uh, fi financial issues, we'll say, that uh, Sadiq Khan's been having. And one of those things seems to be around Transport for London. And ju just in, in the last 18 months, uh, Sadiq Khan has had TfL's third government bailout. I mean, when you hear reports about, about this, what, what do you think it says about London, that the, the flagship transport system of the world, particularly the, the tube network, is in such dire measures that it needs a third government bailout in, in, to the tune of billions rather than millions? I, I would say this. The transport network in London is important to the whole country. Sometimes if you live in Manchester or Birmingham, you'd be fed up about hearing about TfL and, and London. But let's be clear, the transport network brings in an awful lot of money and the development into the entire country is disseminated out. So that's important. We've had a huge loss in income because we have had a loss of ridership. So the government have to and have been bailing out TfL. But the thing I would say, why we are struggling to get a long-term bailout is because the mayor has run TfL's finances terribly for the last five years. And now what he's trying to do is cover up that poor management by forcing the government to give him a big bailout. And the government can't and won't and shouldn't do that. What they should be saying to Sadiq Khan is, here's your budget for running London. You run London your way and let the Londoners decide if it's correct. But of course, anything that's done in London will, will have a, a, a national impact. So I do believe the mayors of Manchester, et cetera, can, can have some, some conversation. Because down here in London, the mayor keeps trying to suggest that the government are not supporting London, that the government are anti-London because of the levelling up agenda. And I would say this, I want you to ask Andy Burnham how he would have liked to get five billion, and let's be clear, a five billion pound bailout not just five billion. Remember in London, we've been gifted a wonderful thing called the, the Elizabeth line, which is running to 20 billion pounds, 23 I think now, it's over budget. So every time the mayor says that the government don't support him, someone should remind him they paid a 23 billion pound um, train line for him. They subsidized TfL and that's why he has a responsibility to run the finances properly. And boy, he has not done that. Just br briefly on levelling up, I mean, the, the government has been spending so much time promoting this agenda and primarily focusing on these uh, red wall seats that uh, Boris Johnson won at the general election in 2019. But are you, are you ever concerned that there's too much rhetoric around focusing on the North and uh, other parts of the Midlands and Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, and not enough focus on areas in, in London or the, the South East where there has been the majority of investment, but there are still large areas of deprivation. Let, let, let's be very clear. The government's agenda of levelling up is the whole country. And anybody who knows anything about the finance of this country will know that you cannot level up this country without supporting, um, without supporting London. The government are well aware of this. I've already told you about the train line we've had. We have half of all affordable um, house um, funding in London as, as well. We have our buses substitute... Um, um, subsidised to the tune of £722 million annually. So the levelling up agenda is alive and kicking in London as well, I believe. But let's be very clear, London has some of the poorest places, not only just in England, but in, in, the, in the totality of Europe. So we do need and expect, and, would, and would, would expect to get the same sort of support that other parts of the country are getting. But let's also, let's also be clear, London does better if Manchester 
Birmingham, Glasgow, Edinburgh, you know, Dublin, if all of those places are stronger, London is stronger, having a capital city that completely dominates the British Isles is not useful. Having a capital city that has internal competition with other strong cities is very, very, very useful to us all. And of course, we mustn't let rural poverty just grind on and on and on. If you live in a city, your access to opportunities often far larger than it is if you live in a rural area. And that's why the government has talked about supporting other parts of the country. That's why they've talked about supporting places like the Northeast that have traditionally been poorer than places like the Southeast. So I do think the, the leveling up agenda is the correct way to go. Well, I'd like to move, move away from this and look at an area which I know you spent much of your career campaigning on, and, and that's ca- campaigning against racism. And there have been a number of prominent incidents recently. I, I note primarily the, uh, the incidents during the European Championships in, in the summer with uh, Marcus Rashford, Bukayo Saka and Jaden Sancho, which reignited the debate around tackling racism in, in society. Do you, do you think groups like Black Lives Matter or t- teaching critical race theory in schools and universities is actually helpful in, in countering racism or do you think there is a better way to talk about this issue? Let's be clear, Black Lives Matter and critical race theory shouldn't be taught in school. Actually, they make people racist. I, I think they, 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 they elevate the, 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 the conversation around racism in a way that means it will never be dealt with. I think what we need to do is firstly acknowledge that racism exists, but also acknowledge we have made some progress, some very, very significant progress. And lately it feels like that's being dragged back by people talking about teaching things like critical race theory in school. I think that's actually damaging the progress that we that has, has been made. I think often now we have foreign actors who are pumping out some very very vicious um, racist rhetoric on social media, causing us to have internal arguments that weren't being had in this country until somebody acted on them outside the country to create civil unrest. And I think we need to be aware of that. But it's also a real, the real, the real solution to racism is personal responsibility. We need black people to be able to tell the story of how we have struggled for that emancipation, for that equality in in society. We need white people not to be so afraid of having the conversation. What's happened now when we use things like Black Lives Matter, critical race theory, those kind of things, we're terrifying white people from having a conversation. And there's nothing, if if you continue to do that, that will make people more racist. It'll It'll mean they become closet racist, which is even more insidious for, for black communities. Black, black and white people need to be have, have a realistic conversation about what's going on, what went on in the past, but more importantly, how we're gonna fix the future. That's the most important thing. I've been a youth worker for over 25 years now. One of the best things about this country is we are actually having this conversation. Many countries in the world are not having it. And our young people are far, far less racist than, than, than certainly the generation that I grew up in. And I, I don't wish to wade into any of this culture war rhetoric, if you like, because I, I just don't think it's very helpful. It's reductive in the debates. But just how damaging do you think this inverted comes woke ideology and identity politics in, in the conversation around race is? Just how, how damaging do you think it is as it becomes more and more widespread? It's hugely damaging because what it's doing to black communities is making young black children think that everybody's out to get them. And if you're fearful, two things happen. You either have a militant response or you have a, a retrograde response where you just shrink into yourself because you think the whole world's out to get you. Yes, racism exists. It's alive and kicking. But yes, we are a country that's trying to tackle it. And that should be as bigger, if not bigger, part of the message. 
And also it means that we're having very polarized conversations. And it's one of the real, it's one of the real um, antagonistic conversations that's making all of our public sphere more and more and more polarized. And countries that have polarized politics can't solve big, complex social problems. And that's why I want to move away from that and have a much more reasoned, level-headed debate. The, the amount of abuse sent to black politicians, particularly conservative politicians like you, and uh, another example is uh, the Equalities Minister, Kemi Badenoch. It, it's simply unacceptable, the, the amount of abuse you receive. But sadly, it, it just doesn't seem to be going away. Why, why do you think there is this perception that a large number of people hold that being black and being a conservative, small C and big C conservative, are incompatible? Because it's pushed by the left. If you, if you, have, if you grow up in a left-wing environment, let's be very clear about this. Left-wing politics teaches people to hate. Angela's Rayner's comments were, were, were quite de demonstrable. Every time someone calls you a Tory, they're setting up the double standard because then they can wade in and say what they like. If Angela Rayner's comments were made by a, a, a Tory minister or a Tory um, MP, there would be calls for their head. Forget support, there'd be calls for their head. It's, that double standard is, is terrible. It, it's part of how the left have traditionally spoken about the right. What they don't like is the confidence that comes from small C conservatism, the confidence that comes from big C conservatism. And they are afraid that if, if, if any community of color starts to look at that kind of um, politics, gets a confidence and immediately move away from voting for them. I, I think it's a very threatening politics. I think it's very bullying. And I think we definitely need to stop it because it, I always tell young people when I talk about politics, I don't need you to agree with me, but I, I do need you to have a look at the whole playing field. I do need you not to just receive knowledge and, and see it as a truth, challenge people, challenge knowledge, challenge the, the, the things you're being told. And that kind of, you know, sending people racist comments, that kind of telling people they can't vote one way because they're black is it, it, to bully people into silence. And I think it's wrong. Well, that holistic approach to politics of seeing all sides and hearing all, all views, that's something that you really brought to the fore of your mayoral campaign earlier this year and even last year. And within that mayoral campaign, I think it's fair to say that you, you did far better than many in the polls, in the media, and perhaps even in the Conservative Party thought you, you would do. Why do you think that is? I think for me, I, 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 I'm a person, it's people above politics. And, and I'm, I'm someone who's a conservative, small and large C, but I don't think the right is right about everything. And I don't think the left is wrong about everything. I'm very willing to learn from people and change my politics. My principles are rock solid. My politics is for changing. People can say to me, there is a better way to run the transport system, deal with school funding. I, I want to have, the, have those debates. And I might, and all of that lead, led me to the place that my politics are for working people. And how I define working people is, could you afford to lose a month's salary? You know, most of the people I grew up with couldn't afford to lose a day's work, forget a month's salary. And I try to make my politics relative, relevant to them, those people, the squeeze middle, the people at the bottom, I'm relevant to them. And if you're going to do that, you have to have an inclusive conversation. I, I was recently told off as telling um, single straight white men that they mustn't feel bad about being, but having the conversations about racism or being involved in the Conservative Party, you know, because we're constantly going after single white men, apparently, you know, male parents stay out there a problem. You know, I try to say to people, I personally think we all have much more in common than we have in difference. I'm, I'm really focused on working in the bits we have in common because they tend to be the big life questions. Can I work? Can I feed the family? Where do I live? Am I safe? 
largely we all have the same goal on that, sometimes a different route, and I'm prepared to, um, to debate the route. And what was the main concern of voters during the mayoral campaign? 100% crime, mm. simple as that. I, I, as a politician, you, you, you think you know stuff and you take temperatures and you sit in rooms and you visit people and you meet organisations. But then my campaign director said, okay, you think it's about crime. I think it's about crime, let's test this. So we went out and polled people and we told the entire London Conservative Party, ask people what they want to talk about. It didn't matter, young, old, gay, straight, black, white, north, south, east, west London, everybody was talking about crime. Yes, there were other things they were talking about as well, housing, transport, you know, the, the safety of their children, all of those things, but every community had crime as its top or its second most important um, subject, which led me to believe I was on the right lines when I said we've got to make London safer for everybody. And because of the pandemic, the election was delayed a year, but that delay also inspired a large number of third party candidates in that election, ranging from uh, from YouTubers to local activists to actually stand for election. Do you think the amount of extra candidates was actually detrimental to your campaign and in fact split the Conservative vote? Or do you think it was more important to get people engaged in the democratic process? I, I don't believe in the Conservative vote or the Labour vote. I believe in the vote. And letting as many people have a, a point of view, that's democracy. It's messy, it's uncomfortable, but that's democracy. So I welcome that. What I didn't welcome was people who used the election as a stunt. Some of the YouTubers, some of the ridiculous videos and stuff they made, I, I, I'm embarrassed for them. Because remember, our children are dying. There's homeless people on the streets of London. There's people who have lost their livelihood. There's pensioners who are lonely. All these issues you have in London, and they use the mayoralty as, as a stunt. I, I, I'm just, I, was just, I was astonished and shocked by that. But anybody, even people who had completely different political views to me, who stood up and put their head above the parapet and said, I think my issue is important enough to ask Londoners to vote for it. I welcome that because to my mind, that's democracy. And how did the pandemic affect actually campaigning and interacting with voters? I mean, on the negative side, it meant no door to door. It meant less face to face, you know, hustings, less face to face. Um, you know, corner meetings and stuff. I, I, I used to do a very good line at, at, at meeting people at, at sound tube stations and, and talking large numbers of people and, and talking here in the debates. Mm -hmm. So that was a negative side. On the plus side, it did mean when we went to video, many, many people attended meetings who normally wouldn't or couldn't attend a meeting. And, and that was quite good. And I was able to speak to a large number of of, of campaigning groups, of business groups, of young people, of older people as well, because it's safe, convenient for them to come on, on, on video chats and do that. So in one sense, we're able to reach out to a lot of people. And also I did a lot of community radio, which <laughs> it, it was such, a, it, it, it was real joy in, in, in that, you know, people who run community radio, it's a real work of passion for them. And you sense that in the kind of questions and, and just the sort of exuberance of what's going on. And I enjoyed that a lot. So do you think more Zoom calls and on, online meetings, even community radio, things like that, do you think they will become a more prominent aspect of campaigning and, and electioneering going forward as we, as we leave the pandemic? 100%. They're here to stay because they're convenient. I really like face-to-face -face stuff. I like people. It's really important to speak to people. And, and sometimes a, a video screen can hold certain groups out. You're not a member of that group. You don't have the equipment. You're homeless. You're between jobs. You're between homes. So we have to be careful we don't lose people between the cracks. 
but you can't get away from the convenient fact. I mean, you are in Manchester, I am in City Hall in London, and we are able to speak as if you stood in front of me. It's important. We probably wouldn't have been able to do this without this video call. So I do think it's here to stay. It does have some merit, but what it should be is an addition to traditional campaigns, not a substitute for. And during the the mayoral campaign, there were a number of reports in the media that um, CCHQ, the Conservative campaign headquarters, actually wanted to replace you with another candidate, Sajid Javid being one of the rumoured names, and uh, withdraw a large amount of funding for your campaign due to a a series of low polling figures. Was any of that true, or was it just simply the media rumour mill in action? It was media rumor. I remember when it came out, Boris rang me immediately and he said, forget those buggers, Sean. They tried this on me in 2006. Sajid phoned me and he said, Sean, good luck with running for mayor for London. I would never do that. That is clearly nonsense. If you need help, here's my number, give me a call. So immediately I knew it was nonsense. And of course, it's probably opposition as well. If you can get a rumor going that you want your, your opponent to be reselected, I mean, that's campaign disruption 101, I would, I would imagine. It's not the kind of thing I would do, but I'm, I'm sure for certain people who weren't supporting me, it'd be great to have that to have that going. But the best thing about those rumours, the single best thing was how strongly Conservatives in London came out for me and how Londoners came out for me. Those rumours in the end proved to be quite helpful because people are like, well, why aren't they supporting you? Why won't support you? You know, what have you got to say? And then we were able to have conversations. I was able to get my messages out. So for me, they take, they, it ended up being a good thing in, 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 in the long run. But I won't lie, it's not nice to read those things. It, 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 doesn't, it doesn't help you've had a, you know, you had a hard week campaigning and then people discussing if you get rid of you or not. So it isn't nice to read those things. But what is nice is when random activists that you've never met before send you a message on Twitter and say, whatever they say, Sean, you're my man and I'm here to campaign for you. That was very uplifting. Throughout your, your life, I think it's fair to say you've led a, a very varied life so far. You've, uh, you've obviously you've stood for election. You've been involved in the army cadets. You've experienced homelessness. You, as you mentioned before, you've been a social worker and even served as a, an advisor to David Cameron as well when he was prime minister. How have all those experiences shaped your view on the world? My experiences, I mean, they just, they make me believe in people. When you're in politics, you, you can get sucked into the Westminster game or you can get sucked into city hall policy. What I know is, my experience has said to me, if you give people an opportunity, they'll stand on their own two feet. The reason I'm a conservative is because the happiest communities are the communities furthest away from dependency, furthest away from the government. So that's why I believe in a small, agile government, not a big overarching state. And that's why I believe in helping people stand on their own two feet. To, to, to coin a phrase, I am for giving people the net, not giving them a fish, if, if, if you see what I mean. And that has been borne out in my experiences again and again and again. When I was homeless, you know, sofa surfing, going around, it was soul crushing, it was scary. And to have people support me to get on my own two feet, to go out into the world, to the very fortunate situation I'm in now that I own my own home, or, or at least I'm paying the mortgage, that for me was a journey. And um, being a youth worker as well, you realize you can't just tap a young person on the head and everything's all right. You have to take them on a journey. And that passage through life dominates how I think about all of my politics. Let, let's take housing, for instance. I recently told someone we should build bungalows and they were like, but that's a complete waste of space. I said, no, it isn't. Because if you look at the journey through, ha- through, through life, older people who live in three and four bedroom houses stay in those houses because they haven't got an appropriate place to move to. If we could provide them with a bungalow and free up a family house that is already built. You know, it's little things like that. Understanding the journey through life 
that, that helps people. Being a youth worker, you see the, the real risk points for young people to transition from junior school to senior school, from senior school to college or out into the workplace. They're the point you have to support people. And my experience dealing with different people from all walks of life, literally all walks of life, from prison to the lords, from, from homeless people to billionaires, dealing with all of those different people has made me understand, I hope, what we can do to help people be independent, be strong and stand on their own two feet. I just want to pick up on something you said there about being in favour of a, a smaller, more agile state. And I suppose this kind of links to levelling up that we were talking about before and regional devolution. It's a topic that I'm quite interested in and we've explored it a, a number of times on the show. Now, as a member of the London Assembly, I, I, I assume you're going to have a somewhat biased answer to my question here. But do you think regional legislatures like that's that you, you serve on in, in London are actually beneficial to supporting local people and local government? Or are they actually just an additional layer of bureaucracy and even a burden to the taxpayer? I would say it's definitely a, a, a benefit, but I'd also say we have to be careful. So you, you're a fan of devolution. Okay, so am I at Mondial Under Assembly, but we have to be careful what we devolve because certain things you devolve, you actually weaken the government's ability to do something spectacular because they can affect the whole piece. So, you know, things around environment, it'd be great to devolve them to the cities, but it's probably better that the government makes the whole country do it, not just the city do it, if, if, if you see what I'm, I'm, I'm saying. And when someone asks me about the effectiveness, particularly of, of Mayor of London, the London Assembly, I told them this. We have been talking about building Crossrail since the 50s, yeah. It never happened. Now it happened because we have a Mayor of London and a London Assembly and TfL to do it, a central regional body. Some things are best dealt at regional level and some at council level, local level. So I think this level of government is, is, is vital for a developed Western economy. I, I really do think that our, our democracy and our economy is, is, is so developed now that we do need this level of government, particularly in the southeast, we really need it in the southeast to make certain things happen. Finally, at the election, you came within just two hundred thousand votes of winning the, the mayoralty in May. Would you consider standing for the mayoralty again in twenty twenty four? I mean, look, it, it, this is it's probably two things to that. Firstly, I have to ask Mrs. Bailey because <laughs> do not do these things alone. Yeah. My family. It, 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 it takes a toll on your family. It really, really, really does. So I'd have to go back and speak to my wife. And the other thing is this. To my mind, all elections are fought in unique circumstances. And if, if Londoners wanted me, if my, if my Conservative camp colleagues across London wanted me, um, I felt I had something to offer. I certainly wouldn't rule it out. But it isn't a conversation for now. Right just now, I'm chair of the Police and Crime Committee. I'm chair of the Economy Committee. I want to see London do the best. And unbelievably, I'm, I'm here trying to support Sadiq Khan to make the right decisions for London to prosper. And by London, extension of the whole country to prosper. That's my goal now. If I stand again or not, let, let's see where London, let's see where the country is in a year or two's time. Sean Bailey, thank you very much for coming on the show. Absolute pleasure. Great to be here.